Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again and again, we just heard, um, thus says the Lord. And these words, I think we've heard sometimes, some of us frequently in a way that we don't even um, pause to reflect just how extraordinary it is that the Lord, the God of the universe, would speak and would speak to us. And yet that is what has happened, and uh, you have told us that even as we gather together and as we listen to it, you are actually speaking to us this very moment. And so, Father, we, um, we look to you asking, uh, knowing that we are inadequate on our own to hear rightly what you have to teach us, so we ask that your spirit would help me, would help us, that together we would be your hearing people and would be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, um, a flight with U.S. Airways, when U.S. Airways uh, used to be in existence, uh, was scheduled to land at SeaTac, that is Seattle's, uh, Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, late one night, bringing, you know, a couple hundred people to their homes or to workplaces. And the only difficulty was, at the time, there was a very thick fog. It was uh, less than 300 feet visibility. Um, so think about, like, in, during the day, if you have a fog that level, you can kind of only barely make out the house across the street. During night, you see nothing. And in many smaller airports um, or lesser trained pilots, um, what would have happened is they would have taken the airplane and told them to go somewhere else where a fog hadn't set in so they could land in a more simple fashion. But SeaTac is one of the more advanced airports. It's a high volume airport. And the captain, Captain John Cox, was familiar with what to do. And so they decided even despite all of the thickness of the fog, they would still land. Apparently, and of course I'm not a pilot, but apparently learning how to be a pilot kind of comes in two phases. There is something called VFR and IFR, visual flight rules and then instrument flight rules. At first, when you learn how to fly, you basically learn to fly in the way that you learn how to drive. You look for things that you don't want to hit and you stay away from them. It's all visual. But there's a problem with that, right? When you are flying, sometimes you come through these things called clouds, and suddenly you don't see anymore. And so, as pilots learn really how to fly well, they move from visual flight rules to instrument flight rules. They learn to navigate more by what they see in their instruments. And apparently it can be a very difficult transition because we are so attuned to just doing what we see. That's what we trust most. But the best pilots oftentimes learn to trust the instruments more than they trust their own sight. And it was through instruments that Captain John Cox was, was seeking to land the plane. And as he recalls after, even at a thousand feet off the ground, they were getting close to the airport. They could not see a thing. No evidence of a city, let alone an airport. You get to 500 feet and still, for all they know, and just imagine, you are taking a plane with 200 people's lives waiting on you. And, and you know that in a short while you are going to be hitting something. And you can't see what it is. It could be ocean. It could be a highway. There is no visual confirmation, not at 500 feet, not at 250 feet. He says it wasn't until 50 feet, just a few seconds before they hit the tarmac, that he could actually see that he was landing on an airstrip. 
he had to navigate things completely, not by sight, because sight gave him no visual confirmation, but purely trusting in the instruments that he had before him. And I would suggest that is a metaphor that, that helps us as we try to navigate what it looks like to wait. Advent, in many ways, is a time of weight training. And, of course, I don't mean by that, like, you know, muscle kind of stuff. I'm talking about W-A-I-T, waiting. We are seeking to learn to wait together as God's people because we believe that just as God promised that Jesus would come and he came, so he promises that Jesus is coming again, that his kingdom is coming. And so we remember the time of waiting in the past to help us as we seek to wait in the present. And that waiting isn't easy. We reflected on that last week when we were looking at Ethan the Ezraite as he was just feeling completely bewildered, confused. And, and we saw that part of waiting involves just staying confused and recognizing that's a reality and yet staying connected to God, waiting in prayer. This morning I want to add one more piece to this, this shape of what waiting looks like and that's what we see in our passage in Jeremiah. That, that to wait well involves learning to navigate the fog of our life, trusting not in what we see, but trusting in the instrument that God has given us, that is, His Word. In our passage, I want us to consider just two things. I want us to consider the fog that we find ourselves in and the Word that God has given us to navigate this fog. So first, the, the fog that we find ourselves in. Our passage begins clearly in the middle of something. I don't know if you noticed this, when it says, the word of the Lord, verse 1, please, if you don't have it open, it might be helpful to kind of have the passage open. Um, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the guard. And we go, What's, why, why is he shut up in the court of a guard? This doesn't seem very pleasant. Well, you should know that at the time, this is right around 589 B.C., you have Nebuchadnezzar and his entire army, like we were talking about last week, surrounding Jerusalem. And, and Jeremiah is in the city right now. And strangely, the city actually is feeling fairly optimistic. The king is like, we've made it through other stuff like this before, like Assyria. This is a place with the temple. I am the king that is in David's line. We have great walls. We will prevail. And, and Jeremiah was annoying them like crazy by saying, no. God has said to me, I'm the prophet, and God has said, you are going to be judged. This is not going to turn out well. You will fail. And so what does Zedekiah do? He throws him in prison. He doesn't want to listen to this guy. And so why Jeremiah is waiting for what he knows is about to happen, what he knows is going to be a devastation of the city of Jerusalem, God speaks to him, and God prepares him for what's next. He says, just as, as confident as these people are right now in their success, there will be a time very soon when everything fails where their emotions will go completely the other direction, and they will be absolutely confident of hopelessness. And we can actually see God kind of anticipating two things that these people, once reality hits them, two things that they are going to say in response. The first is in verse 10, thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, he's talking about the people once they are feeling devastated, it is a waste 
without man or beast in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitants. It's a waste. They, they are now looking at the city, and they're seeing it in smoldering ruins, and there is no life and, and nothing that looks like it's going to turn positively. And so they are saying, it's, it's, it's over. It's done. There is no hope for it. It is a waste. And then verse 24, we see their despair spoken of second time, where it says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose. Two clans being Israel and Judah, God's people. So not only are they saying this city and this country, there is no hope for it, but they're saying, and God has utterly rejected us. I mean, how else do you explain what's happened to us? We've been overrun. All of the promises seems to have failed. God is against us. We are sure of it. There is no more hope for us. That is what they are saying. They are showing a complete lack of hopefulness. And what I would also suggest is what they are showing is a, a lack of self-awareness. Just a little while ago, they were saying, we are sure we'll make it through. We are sure we'll prevail. And it doesn't take long before saying, we are sure that we have no hope. And the question that they should be asking is, why are we so sure? If we were so confidently optimistic and we were so wrong, maybe that tells us about our ability to actually understand what's going on. Maybe we are in more of a fog where we don't see things clearly than we realize. I was thinking about the mood swing that we see being pointed to in these verses, and it occurred to me that actually our, our culture has kind of gone through a similar kind of bipolar kind of mood swing, if you think about it. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, and... and People will romanticize the 80s. It was a weird time, but things that I do remember about the 80s, I, I remember that everything was space-age technology where we had like personal computers and microwaves and VCRs and technology seemed limitless. And, you know, you would listen to the radio and there'd be cheerful songs like, wake me up before you go-go. And like every TV sitcom seemed to end at the very nice conclusion with this kind of like moral package where everything worked out nicely. And, and there was even a sense that, you know, like that this was God's nation because we were going up against those bad communists and we were on the side of right. And at the end of the 80s, we won, right? Because the, 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 the wall fell down. There was this sense of an inevitability of progress. I mean, sure, did we have drug issues? Yeah. Were divorce rights, rates going sky high? For sure. Were there issues in inner cities where projects were, were completely bad? Absolutely, but we can figure all of that out. There was optimism that was just overflowing in that decade in some ways. But now it's different, right? I mean, I mean we could chart a few different places. We could speak of September 11. And then the Great Recession. And then, of course, the last couple of years. And suddenly now we've moved to a place of feeling, I think, vulnerable, um, uncertain, frustrated as we see us as a people trying to deal with things like sickness and, and environmental issues and political dissension. And there is increasingly sense that we have no possible ability to deal with 
any of this. I, I, I've heard, to paraphrase what I heard one person says, the world is in trouble and people stink. And there's this sense of, no, we, we, we don't have any hope for the future. I am sure that things are going to go terribly. And, and the question that I think people need to be asking is, if we were so sure in the 80s that everything was going to turn out great, many of us at least, and we were so wrong, shouldn't we at the same time doubt our pessimism now? Maybe the issue is not that we were wrong then and we were right now. Maybe the issue is that we're just really bad at understanding what's going on. Maybe actually while we want to think we have our mind around everything, we're actually really navigating in a fog where we don't see things clearly. And God actually points even more to the reality of that fog in verse 2 where he says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Now, consider that. Great and hidden. That word hidden literally could be inaccessible. Things you don't have access to when it comes to knowledge. We in our day generally don't like to think that those kinds of things exist. I mean, we are a world that has figured out DNA. We feel like we're figuring out quantum particles and black holes. There's a sense that if you give us enough time, we should figure everything out on our own. And yet, we know that's not true, that there are some, some things that are real that we will never be able to figure out just through experimentation and hard work. Does the human person have a soul? No brain scan or microscope will answer that question. Is there life after death? You send a satellite into space, and no matter how long it explores, it will not answer that for us. Does this world have a direction it's going and purpose to it? Is there a God who reigns over all things, and how does he feel about us? These are truths that are inaccessible to us when it comes to just discovery and to science. And yet, these are also things that are great, as he says here, that are important. I mean, that you really need to know. I mean, if we want to know how to be who we are and what to do with our lives, isn't it important to know what we are and where this world is going? See, what we see here, if we step back and, and kind of recognize what God is saying is we are in a world where we don't see things very clearly and where the most important or some of the most important things to know are things that we can't possibly know on our own. We are in a fog where if we try to fly by visual flight rules only by what makes sense to us, by what we can see, we will never find our way. There's a fog. But what we also see here is that not only is there a fog that we find ourselves in, but that God, in his kindness, gives us the instruments that enable us to know how to navigate this fog. 
The very beginning of our passage says something extraordinary that it's so easy to miss. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And then repeatedly again and again throughout this passage it says, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. What we're supposed to understand from this is that we have a God who speaks to us. Now that might seem unsurprising if you are somehow have grown up in say like Christian or Judeo-Christian background that might seem like a normal thing but it really is actually quite odd you go to any other religion and that is not what you discover it's interesting if you look at the time around the time when Jeremiah was written there are kind of pagan psalms that are written and there's this one psalm that we still have where it's basically crying out to the God they worship saying we don't know what to do we don't know how to live we don't know what pleases you could you please tell us but there's this sense that divine, whatever it is, the gods, whoever they are, are not that interested actually in speaking to humans. And why would they be? So instead, you have to have shamans who read entrails or magi who look at stars to see if they can kind of rob some of the knowledge from the divine. Or you have people who have to go through all sorts of processes to attain enlightenment. Because God's not that interested in speaking. You have to work hard to figure out. Only the best, the elite, might ever find that out. And yet that is so different from what we see the God of the Bible saying. The, the very beginning when he makes Adam and Eve, what does he do? He speaks to them, be fruitful and multiply. Abraham, he calls, says, go, leave, go to another land. Moses, he speaks from a burning bush. When he gathers his people around the mountain, he speaks and gives them the Ten Commandments. Again and again he speaks until the very Son of God himself becomes the Word of God made flesh. We have a God who speaks to us. And again, the same verse, what does he say? He says, again, verse 2, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. In other words, we might not understand a lot of these things, but the one who is speaking is the one who made everything, who made earth, who made physics, who made souls. He's the one who's speaking. And what does he say? He says, call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. There are things that you can't know. There is knowledge that you cannot attain through looking, through pursuing, through working, but if you ask me, I will give it to you. I will speak and give you the means to navigate your life. And, and we see here as he is speaking, he Specifically when he's talking to such a dejected people, the things that they could not possibly know that he will reveal to them are words of hope. God says to them, here's something that you could not possibly know, but I will tell you, I'm going to forgive you. So verse 5, at the very end of it, we see kind of the situation that Israel finds themselves in, where he talks about at the very end of that verse, in my anger and my wrath, for I have hidden my face from this city because of all their evil. This part 
makes sense, I think, to God's people then and maybe even to right now. People have done terrible things to God. They have rejected, they have turned against Him, and God says, I've hidden my face, they have experienced my anger. So far, that makes sense. But then, what happens next? It says, verse 6, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. And then if we skip to verse 8, I will cleanse them from all of the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. He's, he's saying, they have stabbed me in the back, and their hands are bloody, and I will wash their hands. They have done terrible things against me, and now I will clean them. Notice he doesn't say they've done terrible things, and sometime they will recognize it, and they will repent, and then I will forgive. No, he's like, they've done terrible things, and guess what? Now I'm going to forgive them. It, it, it doesn't makes sense. And that's actually because forgiveness by its very nature never makes sense. Think about it. Most of our lives, we're accustomed to, to thinking in terms of cause and effect. We think in terms of science. We think in terms of relationships. So, so if someone does something really nice for me, I will appreciate it. I will be thankful and I will probably think even maybe better of them. And then hopefully if, if say, I promise to do something and I do it, that will then lead to the effect of, of people trusting me. On the other hand, if I promise to do something and then I break it, say, I say, I won't tell anyone and then I end up putting it on Facebook or something like that, suddenly that, that, that has an effect as well, right? Suddenly that relationship is ruptured. We're accustomed to cause and effect. And forgiveness is a break in that. When someone chooses to forgive, they say, I'm going to do what makes no sense. I'm going to suspend cause and effect. This is what naturally should happen. This is what you would expect to happen. But I am choosing to do something different. Which means forgiveness is not ever something that we can naturally deduce. The only way we can ever know we are forgiven is when someone tells us. The only way you can ever know that God has forgiven you is not because it will feel intuitive, because it will feel real, because forgiveness never makes sense. The only way we can know is because God says, I forgive you. For many of us, there will come times, maybe repeated times, where we are brought to a place where we are keenly aware of our failure. Not just that we sometimes do things wrong, but we will feel the weight of it. And maybe even we will recognize that the way that we have failed is not against others only, but against God. And we will feel an honest shame that we won't know what to do with. And in that moment, if we're just leaning on our own understanding and what we see, there is no solution. The only Thing we have to lean on, and it is everything, is that we have a God who has said, I forgive you. And what's more, in our passage, not only does he declare the completely nonsensical possibility that he will forgive them, but he also declares that he is going to restore them. Verse 7, I will Restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first, 
he continues on in verse 10. It says, Thus says the Lord, in the place of which you say it is a waste, without man or beast and all of those things, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord will be heard. As they sing, give thanks to the Lord of hosts. He's saying, I want you to look at the impossible. I want you to imagine the impossible. I want you to look at that city that is nothing but rubble. To look at it that has no sign that there's any future for it. And I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine singing and dancing. I want you to imagine weddings. I want you to imagine gladness. I want you to imagine wholehearted praise because people recognize how deeply God loves them. I want you to imagine that. I want you to know that is what is going to happen. And there is no way you can see that looking at this. The only way you can know is because I tell you. I want us actually to try to do something similar. I want us for a moment to just to think about this reality, to think about the situation we find ourselves in with, with the news and the frustration, to think of the world with a sense of what's going to happen, whether the environment or with COVID, to think of, of even our own lives and sometimes the busyness and the overwhelmingness and the exhaustion and, and just how things feel right now. Just be there for a moment. And then I want us to try to kind of, in our minds, imagine this same world, this same community different. Where, where there's no more disease, where there's no more rivalry between nations, where we never lock our doors ever again. We don't even need keys because there is deep connection and, and friendship between each of us in our community. Where, where work is good and satisfying and never beyond our limits. Where, where joy is real and lasting and we actually experience God being with us and we see him face to face. Imagine, try to imagine that reality true of this world. There is no way you can look at the way things are right now and go, yeah, that's where things are going. No, the only way we can know that it's going to happen is because God says this is what I promise, this is hidden, inaccessible knowledge that I am giving to you. He, he anchors it in the promises that he made, the ones that we've been focusing on over the last few weeks, where he says in verse 14, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he, that is, the Messiah, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Do you hear what he's saying? I, I am promising you that this will be made right because the Messiah will come. And you can't see it right now. It makes no sense right now. You are just going to have to hear my word. It will feel, to use this modern analogy, it will feel like you are trying to land a plane in the middle of fog and you have no idea if a runway is there in front of you. 
And the only thing that you have to judge by whether this is right or wrong is not your sight because you can't see, but by what I have given you, my word. And the reason you can do this is because my word is stronger and more reliable than you can possibly imagine. At the very end, he, he talks about the sun and the moon. And here's basically what he says. He says, did you expect to see the sun come up this morning? Why? Why every morning do we see the sun on the horizon? That might seem like a strange question, but it's interesting. Actually, philosophers, David Hume being one of them, it's like, there is no real reason why we should assume that the world keeps doing the same thing day after day. It's just that it does. And God says, you know why it does? Because I have said it will. Because when I speak and I bring order, it is bedrock, it is reliable, because that's how my word works. And in the same way that every day the laws of physics are the same, because I have said so, so also I have said that my king will come. And it is just as certain that it will take place. These Words that I have given you, you can navigate your life by because they are truer than truth itself. And the thing is, we actually have even more data. Like, we have seen the instruments calibrated. We have seen the reality because we know that exactly what Jesus, what, what God promises, we see take place in Jesus. There was no way it could have been known that it would happen apart from the fact that God said it would. And he says this, in this life, is what it looks like. You are in a fog where you can't always trust how you see things, where there are things that are hidden from you, and the only way you will have to navigate day after day in this time of waiting is by allowing my word to be what guides you. Proverbs says it well when it says, trust the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, seek to know him, and he will make your path straight. When I think about where I think this passage is calling us to, this, this level of, of trust, of learning to navigate by God's word, I'm reminded of a teacher that I never expected to be taught by because he was a homeless man who struggled from schizophrenia. We were, uh, in our time in Sydney, I was working with a church just very briefly that had this interesting homeless ministry where they would have a meal, they would have kind of a chapel service after, and I was talking with one of the guys who would come, who was living on the streets, who, who spoke of, of delusions and, and hearing voices, and it was hard to speak to him because he didn't speak linearly, right? You know, he was kind of jumping all over the place. And yet, he was a man of profound faith, and at one point, I remember him saying, you know, I know... I can't trust what's going on in here. But I also have learned that I can trust, and then he pulled out his like tattered Bible, what's here? And what's here says that God loves me, and that's enough. And I would suggest to you that we're all like that. None of us can fully trust what's going on here. But what we have here is certain. It is the instrument by which we can navigate our lives. And here's what we have. We have a promise from God that just as he sent his son, he is sending his son to come again and his kingdom 
is coming. And that is how and why we wait.